from Kurtco Media. Would you go on a trip if you had no idea where you were going and no sense of what was going to happen moment to moment while you were there? If that at all piques your interest, even if it doesn't, even if the thought terrifies you, you're going to want to listen to this episode of Travel That Matters. and welcome to Travel That Matters. I'm your host, Bruce Wallen, and today we are going on an extraordinary adventure with the founder of the Extraordinary Adventure Club. His name is Callum Morrison, and he's a former British Royal Marine. He's an ice climber, an expedition leader. He's pretty much just an all-around badass, and we're going to talk to him about some of that stuff and his own adventures, but mainly today we want to talk to him about the absolutely amazing experiences that he sets up for his clients. I want to say there's a lot of talk out there about transformational travel, but if anybody can lay claim to that term, it is the Extraordinary Adventure Club. Callum's got this team of psychiatrists and survivalists and coaches, and they custom create these experiences for you, for whoever you are, that are honestly like nothing else I've ever experienced or really even heard of. And my experience with them goes back a couple of years when I was writing a story about them for Rob Report and I, I signed on to go on this initial retreat. And I, I really, honestly, I didn't know anything about them. And as I would soon learn, that's pretty much the point. And it's this kind of mysterious experience before, during, even after your trip. And for me, at least, it, it all started a couple of weeks before I was leaving. All I knew is that I was going to Scotland. And I got this large black envelope in the mail. And inside the envelope were some reading materials. There's a packing list. And there's a train ticket from Edinburgh to some small town in the Scottish Islands. And and that was it. So I just packed what they told me to pack. I got on my flight, went to Edinburgh, and caught the train. And that sense of not knowing what was next continued throughout this experience. I was never privy to the plans that Callum and his team had in store for me. They might wake me up one morning and say, okay, just put on your running shoes and shorts and we're going. And next thing I knew, I was running through some frigid stream and jumping in a lake in 40 degree temperatures. And one day they dropped me off in an island and and just left me there for several hours by myself in the rain. It was definitely an adjustment, but... I have to say that was one of the special things about this experience. It's it's that seating control, never knowing what's going to happen next. And as we will hear from Callum, that process of giving up control and of focusing on the moment, on, on what's right in front of you, that's a critical part of an extraordinary adventure. Callum, welcome to Travel It Matters. Hey, Bruce. Thank you. Welcome everybody from the Highlands of Scotland where it's currently snowing outside and I've got the fire on and not yet a dram in hand, but that may come later. I should have also mentioned that Callum is a very humble, down-to-earth, good guy, but you know, that's not nearly as interesting as all the badass stuff. So so I went with I went with that instead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Callum, how do you get into ice climbing? That's not something I'm from LA. That's not something you pick up as a teenager in LA. Maybe it's in the blood. I'm half half Scottish, half Norwegian, so I uh, prefer the colder climbs to the, to the warm. 
Yeah, growing up in the Highlands of Scotland, going out from an early age, traipsing around after my father in a cagoule that was far too big, that was sort of rolled up at the sleeves and boots that were two sizes too big with extra socks, following them around. <laughs> so walking through the mountains from then and, and starting this lifelong connection with the outdoors, which has stayed with me. And so progressing from rock climbing through to ice climbing. And I haven't done it for a while now. I look at my ice axes and crampons in the office and think I, I should really pick those up again. But it requires a level of skill <laughs> that's probably faded. So I need to be hauled up now rather than pulling anybody else. It's like the guitar in the corner for most people, but for you, it's, yeah. you know, the yes. ice picks. Yeah. The... I've got one of those as well. I've got a guitar too, but that, that's yeah. seen even less use of my ice axe. So, okay, let's, let's talk about how we go from a young ice climber to where you are today with the Extraordinary Adventure Club. You've got, obviously, nature, outdoors. They've been a huge part of your life. How does that play into what you do now? You know, nature is non-judgmental. It's it's neutral. It's an environment that's in equilibrium with itself. And once you engage with that, you can't help but kind of acquiesce into the tempo of a place like that and the permanence to an extent. You know, you're walking through hills here that are hundreds of millions of years old and actually on the West Coast, close to a couple of billion years old. And it's seen it all before. It's been there. You trees that are 400 years old and helps put things into context. So I think it provides a catalyst for and a lever for change and it helps us get to a point with the coaches, psychotherapists, guides, whoever it is that we're working with, with a particular individual or small group. It allows us to get to that point far quicker when in that environment. We take people's watches, their phone, their laptop of them so that they do connect with themselves and that there is that space to do that. And, and nature allows that. Okay, I want to talk about that more and about the specific experiences that you guys set up for your clients. But first, tell me how you ended up starting the Extraordinary Adventure Club and like what led you or inspired you to this point? You know, travel's broadening. You recognize the more you travel that there's no one universal truth. There are many continuing on that kind of path. I hitched across Africa when I left uni and then joined the Marines and there joined purely to find the edges of myself and then push that out, recognizing that your mind gives out long before your body does. Your body will do whatever is asked of it. And it's about strengthening your mind. What motivates people to do what they do? Why is it that they fight for others? Why is it they give up their life for somebody else? So seeing what motivates individuals and for myself to have that experience whilst living in environments in a predominantly a liaison style role, uh, living in the Caucasus Mountains, observing the spillover of the Russian-Chechen conflict into Georgia and facilitating these relationship building exercise and building rapport, recognising that your best form of security is your relationship with the local community and nothing else. You know, what is it that motivates people? How do you affect mutually beneficial outcomes in environments where if you get it wrong, it can be quite serious? And so along with that, I was working, I had a couple of businesses and I ended up, I found myself in a multinational running a company with about 1,200 people and not enjoying it at all and realising that actually the motivation for doing what I do was not the process of business, but the people and the places that I go to or have been to and my deep interest in them. So with that seed that I carried from my 19-year-old self, how did I pull the threads of my various lives together to have some kind of meaningful, purposeful engagement. Callum went on to start the Extraordinary Adventure Club in 2012. And today his company takes people who are at some kind of a crossroads in their lives. Maybe they just sold a company, they got a divorce, they're dealing with addiction issues, you name it. And to put it far too simply, they take them out in the wilderness to find themselves. The way it works is basically you start with what I did in the Scottish Highlands, which is what they call their four-day engagement. And that's where they really get to know you, your goals, your issues. But it's after that that the real fun or, or the real adventure begins. Callum and his team create these custom expeditions. They could be 
10 days, 12 days, two weeks, and, and they could go to just about anywhere in the world. They've embedded their clients with anti-poaching units in Southern Africa. They've led them on treks across the Sudan by camel. They've taken them in the jungles of Ecuador where they lived with an Amazonian tribe for a period of time. I mean, these trips are definitely filled with challenges, but also discoveries, unknowns. There's that, again, that sense of mystery that I mentioned that really carries throughout this whole process. And so I asked Callum about that mystery and uncertainty and how his clients learn to cede control. Uncertainty, uncertainty allows for, you know, it's like positive agitation. It allows, again, for a degree of loosening in order to work with the individuals and, and our clients when they arrive. And by not telling you what's happening, it allows for us to change and iterate in that process too. You don't need to necessarily be privy to that. It doesn't detract. It certainly, I think, can enhance. And also this sort of notion of letting go of control, just give 100% to what is right in front of you right now. Let us worry about what's coming. And changing of the tempo again in a, in a positive way to support the work that we're doing. So that all is part of that particular engagement right from the outset to then having, yes, four days in the Highlands of Scotland, which allows us to sort of baseline essentially what it is that we're going to do and how we're going to do it. We will very simplistically look backwards at the issues of the events that have created the behaviours that are now not necessarily serving. What are those? And begin to unpick those and formulate a way forward. Also simplistically looking forwards in terms of very much a values-based approach. We'll also do a fitness assessment, as you know, putting on your training we'll do a bit of cold water immersion we'll sleep out we'll stay in there's a whole host of things that we'll do in terms of supporting the individual that we're working with that yes there will be shifts that occur during those four days but really it's to set up the ongoing and that ongoing then is at least a three-month engagement of support and ongoing coaching and during that period we will then decide what we're going to do in a kind of experiential sense so you do the four days with this team that's customized for this individual and then what's next so yeah what's next is the follow-on engagement. What's important for us is not just what you're doing on those four days, it's how you integrate that into your life and how this period of transition that when you leave us in the Highlands of Scotland or in Northern Norway or wherever we're doing it, that it's not just then lost. So how do you maintain momentum? And that's key to success. Take me through one of these experiences, the extended six week, whatever it is, journey with one of these clients that, you know, I brought up the Sudan by camel. Also, you've told me about a motorcycle trip across Africa. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. As part of the process, there'll be things that clients will give away in, in the one that you're mentioning, a particular individual coming and saying, look, I've spoken to my partner about this and they're happy with me participating as long as there's nothing to do with Africa or motorbikes. And we took them motorbiking in Africa <laughs> because that was part of the issue that needed to be addressed or maybe finding a voice and projecting themselves or working with an actor or that they've always wanted to participate in a rodeo and giving them much opportunity of doing that. So there's a thread of their interest that will pull them through those moments when things are difficult or it is challenging from a developmental perspective. You know, those four pillars of developmental work that we work with on, on the therapeutic, developmental, spiritual and experiential. And those are, those are all interconnected and all key. And in that follow-up, it's particularly the experiential that we will focus on to pull the threads of the other three. And actually, it's more about what is it that we want to do and how do we want to do it? And then where is always the last thing? We never pick the destination first. We select the destination as the best way to create that change and better reflect the developmental imperative that we have with that particular person. And they never know where they're going. So I didn't do that full expedition with you guys. I just did the initial engagement. So for the expedition, like when do they find out where they're going or do they? 
Yeah, they usually find out when they get to the airport. <laughs> There's a lot of work in the background, clearly, and, and we give them all the uh, the instructions. But very often, it's a family member or partner will give them the final envelope, or they'll just have instructions to say, right, you need to be at the airport on this date at this time with this kit, and there'll be somebody there in a red polo neck jumper to give you your final instructions. They'll then open the envelope, pull out the ticket, and think, "Fuck me, I'm going to Guyana." You know, I don't know, I don't even know where that is or what they speak there. It almost doesn't matter, you know, whether you take people to Jungle Desert Mountain. It, it's what happens when you're there that's important and what we like to do is to get people right out as soon as they arrive so that they land at the airport and then within a few hours they are sitting on a camel or they're with dogs or whatever it might be i remember for one of the first dog sledding things i did i remember with this individual had arrived up in far north of norway and it was late and i said right tomorrow morning we're going to drive to a location where you're going to meet the rest of the team that's going to support you for the next 10 days and they were thinking right you know psychotherapist coach whatever is going to be there not when they turned up it was a load of dogs with you know wet noses and waggy tails this kind of look of surprise at that okay so this is obviously not an inexpensive undertaking in any definition of the term who's the typical client for this it actually it varies there are three kind of groups of broadly three groups of people who engage with us so there are those that are proactively engaging who are at an inflection point in their lives whether it's sold a business and still have an itch they can't scratch about who they are you know, key decisions in their life want support and help with making those or just wishing to have some experiences that perhaps because of work or family haven't they've not been able to and, and really want to engage that and engage with that in a particular way that's truly transformative and then the next group are those that are encouraged either by their family or their company or their practitioners in terms of therapists or psychotherapists to engage in that as part of a positive process of their own development. And that's probably the bulk of those that we work with. And then lastly, we work with those who are perhaps in crisis or an acute stage of their life and all ages from 18 upwards, basically, both male and female. You brought up the simplicity of the experience and how important that is to keep things simple. But the logistics behind this must be extremely complicated for you guys. So again, if you're traveling across the Sudanese desert or going into Guyana or wherever it is, this is not an easy thing to pull off. So how do you pull that off? And what happens if something goes wrong? Yes. Yeah, so firstly, I think it was Eisenhower said, planning's essential, plans are worthless. The skill is in the planning. I mean, plans go out the window as soon as you put them into practice. But the planning is absolutely essential. So yes, we do considerable amount of planning. And it's more in terms of on arrival, number of key points in the experience and, and clearly on departure. But we also like to keep it loose so that we can change as required. You know, whatever's working, we'll keep doing that. Whatever isn't, we'll bin it. And because those that we're with don't necessarily know what's coming next, they don't see that. So we just want to support them in finding the edges themselves and stretching that out and keeping them out a particular place without pushing through because if you push through then people shut down so it's not like we're working to a set schedule the schedule is determined by the way that the individual is engaging with the experience and that's the key skill i think is being able to do that and being able to you know watch and and monitor and adjust and continually shape the experience as we're going to full maximum benefit rather than it just being like a holiday it's not a holiday and we're not a holiday company we're not an adventure travel business you know our focus is on personal development it just so happens that we use experiential adventure travel as a key tool in that. So these challenges, whether it's physical, whether it's, you know, pushing someone to the limit. You told me something once about pushing someone to the limit. And then once they've reached their capacity, you push them a little more and then a little more. And what you learn from that, how have you seen this affect change in your client? You know, have you seen this transition where, you know, someone comes in as one person and then goes out of your experience as another person? Yes, 
Absolutely. I mean, that's at the root of why we do what we do and why people come to us. We do see changes, you know, but them being capable of doing things that they never thought possible. But they're so busy doing that particular experience that they didn't realise that they were actually doing that until afterwards. Uh, like the rodeo, you know, somebody who had lost all of their confidence in public, had a very public facing career and used to have to walk their dog at three o'clock in the morning because I got paparazzi'd and gradually withdrawn and withdrawn and withdrawn. Part of the work that we were doing was to bring them out and knowing that they're interested in in horses and riding and participating in in a rodeo was going to be something that they were going to be engaged in. And what they ended up doing was we had them racing in in a barrel race in Brazil. They did it and so focused on enjoying this particular experience, not realizing that they're doing it in front of about eight and a half thousand people. It was only after then that got the after that and they came second actually. It was quite extraordinary. So they came second in the so thing. You're a, you're a rodeo trainer. Well, as not well. me. I mean, it, we got. Uh, we've got the previous rodeo king and queen to do the, all of that for them. Uh, I'm pretty useless on a horse. For them, to the, the sort of ringmaster interview them afterwards. So they're speaking then to all these thousands of people in this arena, just completely forgetting that actually a few months ago, they couldn't even get outside of their house. Or the one about the, the motorbiking, the individual there did a bit of training with some of the BMW off-road guys. Uh, we're down in Southern Africa, we rode mostly off-road. But just to ensure that we're all at the same level doing a off-road rider training program just outside Cape Town and there before we then went on to do this huge off-road experience where we ended up in Victoria Falls, most of it off-road, going through four countries and living off your bike. Basically a bottle of whiskey and a spare pair of pants and the rest were motorbike spares and oil. Uh, And it was an interesting thing about what is it that you take with you and what is it that you leave behind. But I remember we were doing this training and part of the when you come to an obstacle or you're moving through an obstacle on a bike is there's a drill about look up, stand up and open up. And so it's look up because you look to your exit point. You look at where you're going, not at the obstacle. Clearly, if you look at the obstacle, you end up in it. You stand up to lower a centre of gravity and kind of face what's coming and you open up. So you're loose on the bike so it can move underneath you. But also counterintuitively in, in mud and sand is that you give yourself a bit of power. So look up, stand up, open up. We're doing this kind of drill then on the steep bank. And I remember it's really sandy myself and the instructor were standing at the bottom and this particular client was was hammering up and the hazard, the obstacle was this, it was like an hourglass constriction of bushes, really thick bit of scrub through this sort of very sandy pathway and that was, it was a narrow opening you had to go through so you really needed to look at your exit and so he's hammering up this and he's smashing into the bushes, you know, once, twice, three times. And we're, we're at the bottom just looking at him, he's back down and then doing it again. And about the fifth time he hit into these bushes and he stood up and he's covered in dust and sort of in mud and he's scratched on his face. He had this bit of twig sort of sticking out of his visor. And he turned and he said, I've been doing this all my fucking life. I've been doing this all my life. I didn't, hadn't realised until now, but I'd just been seeing obstacles and going into them. I'd never looked past that particular point and I'd never looked to where I was going. I was just always focused on the obstacle and it's taken me, you know, I've only just realised it now and it's taken me to get bruised and battered and scratched to really feel what that's like and I realise that that is what I've been doing. So that's why being out in nature and engaging in those experiences is key because you can physically represent what's going on. Well, that's great too, because it, like you said, the, you can have a plan and then you just, you throw it out because I'm, I'm sure that wasn't even one of the areas that you were looking to, to learn a life lesson. You were just trying to train him for the expedition and here he comes away from this training exercise with a moment. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. On Medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Media. 
So tell me a little bit about the client experience in Ecuador. You went into the jungle and am I right in that you lived with a Amazonian tribe? You camping in these various communities? Are there residences that they stay in? Well, it's, it's a bit of a mix. We're camping. We're doing a mix of camping. We're sleeping in some of the houses that they have. We stay with the shaman in his house. There are a couple of initiatives that they have in terms of trying to support or find other ways of supporting the community. So there's a, a lodge that they've built and run themselves. But primarily, it's about being with the community. And, and in fact, we stayed with one recently. They've never had outsiders to stay. That Clearly, they've met those outside the community, but never had anyone staying with them previously. Are you experiencing that with the client? So the client is with you as this community hosts you for the first time? Yeah, so the client is with us as we're being hosted for the first time. And once you go into these villages, you know, they're, of course, they're interested in you. They're as interested in you as we are in them and the way that they live in, and their environment and their connection too. And I think that's the thing is that people who are really grounded in where they're from and they entirely understand and they're attuned to that environment in a way that perhaps we're not and have lost the ability to be. And so spending time with those who are so in tune with where they're from and what's going on around them, it's utterly fascinating. And we're hugely privileged to to be able to do that. And what I love is that early in the morning, we get up and we take this Wayusa tea, which is this black leafed tea, which is then boiled on overnight in these huge pots on a sort of three log fire. And we get up at four in the morning because it's the coolest part of the day and sit there. And I was invited the first time that I went to drink this tea and not really knowing what was coming. I was there in sort of shorts and a pair of flip flops and a, and a shirt going to somebody's house. There's pots bubbling away of this black tea. And they said, oh, here, have, have some of this. So a huge pot. And I'm dipping it in and, and sipping it like I'm having tea at my grandmother's house. And actually, there's they're sort of no, no, you need to take more. So I realised quickly that actually it's like chugging this stuff like you're drinking yards of ale. And the idea being, as you drink this, it, it hits a point in your belly where you realise that actually you're just going to throw up and projectile vomit as if you've drunk 15 pints of beer on a night out when you're a student and I sort of make it to the outskirts of the of the edges of the hut and projectile vomit into the into the undergrowth along with everybody else who are doing it in lab loudly as it's coming out of your nose and mouth and I've of course splattered myself from my knees down so next time I did it I wore wellies but you know this this whole process of sort of cleansing oneself and you feel because it's highly caffeinated you feel absolutely buzzing and really sharp and this is when all of the important decisions are taken for the community taken at that time of the day so whether it's community work marriage proposal any big decisions are taken then and so you do that and every morning this happens so every morning you kind of get a call or somebody will wake you up and you walk through and you you sit and you pass this gourd round and you drink till you vomit and then carry on with the day. Whether it's riding a motorcycle through Southern Africa or, yes, throwing up outside your tent in the jungles of Ecuador, these experiences have the ability to form bonds. It's it's with family members, with friends, even with complete strangers. And, and that's really the beauty of travel. I mean, I know from my experience in Scotland with the Extraordinary Adventure Club, I mean, we were doing everything together. We were running through streams, we were jumping in the lakes, we were eating our meals together, and we became great friends in those few days. So I asked Callum about that, about these shared experiences and the bonds that they form with their clients. Yes, yeah, we do. And, and and as you will perhaps remember from experience in Scotland, you know, we all sit around the table and we all eat together and we all, we're all exercising together. We're all in the water together. 
but there aren't those boundaries that exist because they, they can't be because we're living together and we're working and it's a you know we we deal in trust and vulnerability and it's a very human-centered engagement so we are sharing those experiences and we're in, we're in it as well and you know it's the first time that I'm meeting those people or that I'm vomiting and the clients vomiting along beside me in drinking that tea or we're eating <laughs> whatever one's eating or we're paddling on in the canoe or carrying what needs to be carried so yeah you do form very strong bonds with these shared stories so going forward it does create a particular engagement and I think it supports also the work that we do because you then see individuals and a part of them that's not necessarily present in their everyday and them with us too so we're vulnerable then it gives permission for them to be that's where the sort of magic happens. I have people talk to me about frictionless travel. I don't know if it's something that you have heard described. You know, you can move through airports and, and have nothing hold you up between leaving your home and arriving at your destination. For me, the whole point of travel, unless you're in doing business, is to have friction, is for things to occur, because that's when the magic happens and that's when you have these experiences. We did one trip in Sudan where we're traveling, we're in the Bayuda Desert, so north of Khartoum, we're crossing the desert and all planning goes out the window when it becomes apparent that the Sudanese military has decided that they're going to do a live firing exercise with jets, helicopters, tanks and armoured vehicles and self-propelled guns in the area that we're going through as these explosions start coming in. And have you ever tried to get a camel to gallop? <laughs> Fucking hell. Fortunately, I have not had to That's do that. where one has these experiences that shape that, that you remember, that are spoken of, that see how you react to that a moment. It's not sterile or sanitized. You know, after this motorcycle trip through Southern Africa, after the, the dog sledding trip, whatever it is, do you stay in contact with these clients after these extended experiences? Yeah, we continue to work with them and, and be connected with them. I'm still very much in touch with the first person I ever worked with. And you have these experiences and you share the hardship. You know, we're, we're doing it with them. We're not standing on the banks telling them to get in the cold water or driving alongside in a car when they're biking or whatever it is or trekking in the jungle. You know, we're with them. We're part of that team. We're part of that group. They become part of our family, our tribe and us with them. And, and so to an extent, they're written into the pages of my life and my colleagues' lives and us with them. So you do former connection and also it takes time to change behavior so it doesn't just happen within can to an extent within four days but over that three months six months year it is an iterative process and you can go through periods of having very big shifts and then just very small ones so it very much depends I to talk about transformational travel, but no one talks about what happens when you get back from that transformational travel, right? So, you know, you may have transformed into the most perfect human being alive on your wonderful trip, but when you get back, everybody else is still the same. I, I actually had that when I got back from the Scottish Highlands. And I really, I mean, I really did have some realizations about my relationships, my physical well-being, everything. And I came back and guess what? My teenagers were still a pain in the ass. They, didn't, yeah. they yes. had not changed. There was a difficult transition back, but then, you know, I think with time, it, you realize that it's an extended period, right? It's, it's a process. And so tell me a little bit about that, like coming back. And I, clearly you've been through, I shouldn't even compare what I did to what, you know, you're, you're coming back home from war zones. I mean, like, how do you make that transition back? And then how does that work with clients? Yeah, I think you and I were talking about it. I was in Libya in 2011 there and I was for three and a half months in, in Miserata. We were kind of surrounded for that period and under siege. 
and shelling and that sort of thing that was going on. So I'm living in this environment, so relatively high intensity. And thankfully, you know, everything's fine. And I, I'm then leaving. So I've been there for that time, not seeing my family and uh, etc. Get on a small boat. And there's some relief, actually, with, with getting on there because uh, shells are being lobbed in, usually at night, but sometimes during the day. And they'd been sort of increasing that tempo at the time that I was leaving. So my last kind of, as I step onto this boat with a number of Libyans who were with me to head to Malta and disappear over the horizon, the last thing I see of, of, of Libya is, you know, some shell smoke plumes as they're shelling just the outskirts of town. So I think, oh, thank goodness for that. As we're pulling out of the harbour, yeah, you know, trying to get this, uh, I'm I'm willing it on to go a bit faster than it's actually going because it's the port that they were trying to hit. So we then head off into the Med to head to Malta. And my relief was short-lived because we headed into one of the worst storms that that part of the Med had experienced for some years. And I really thought the boat was going to sink as this huge sort of slabs of water cracking across the decks. We're all spewing. Uh, I'm normally pretty good on a boat, but I wasn't then. And I don't think the, the fear of ending up in the depths did any good for that and and also the fact when I looked at the captain he looked white as a sheet as well so that, that didn't instill any confidence so anyway we we then finally sort of roll in towards Malta and make it in the early morning roll into Valletta Harbour and we're all standing on the, on the gunwale trying to get a bit of fresh air with a bit of vomit down the front of your jacket type thing and, and as we slide into Valletta Harbour the first vessel that we see is a Disney cruise ship with great big fuck off Mickey Mouse ears on it and a 60 foot goofy hanging off the stern <laughs> these Libyans look at me and I look at them and sort of <laughs> shrug i'm not even going to attempt to describe what a disney cruise is all about we then pull in just behind that to the quayside and we start to tie up but we can, we're halted from getting off because there are explosions going off everywhere there are israeli soldiers running around there are trucks and vehicles there are zombies wandering about and being blown up and on roofs and things and brad pitt's filming world war z on the day that we're pulling in so this kind of discombobulation that's going on and then the lady who appears to take our passports and things and to do the initial pieces obviously just come from the beach so she's in a yellow bikini i recall it's just so disconnected from where we've been as well and eventually we sort of get processed through and they put us up in the centre of St Julian I don't know if you've been to Malta but it's like the party central so we're all looking forward to kind of going out but actually just completely feeling yeah disconnected you know outsiders I was dying for a pint of Guinness so I go to a bar I have a pint of Guinness but that's it that's all I have and all of us we don't really say anything and I just go back to my hotel room because I just can't make this kind of transition into living in that way having had a very different existence about 12 hours after that I'm back home in a small town in the north of Scotland we've run out of tea having just made it home and my wife sent me to Tesco's to get tea and I'm standing in the aisle and I can't decide I've got two I just remember I had like Earl Grey and English breakfast this is very British I realise <laughs> as I'm telling the story Earl Grey or English breakfast and I can't make a decision I have to phone up my wife to say what do I get just completely and utterly removed from and and recognizing that actually it's not for anybody else to make the step to me it's for me to reconcile that with myself and for me to take that transition and or make that transition and for me to close the gap you know I can talk about it as much as I can or or, or want to but if you haven't necessarily experienced it it's very difficult to so then people aren't going to understand you know you hear that refrain oh they don't know what it's like or you know you've got no idea what's going on out there well of course people don't because their reality is entirely different to the one that you're experiencing and if you think that other people are going to make that step towards you you're always going to be isolated and an outsider so it's up to you to take that and take that step and close the gap and for you to do the work on oneself well i obviously still have plenty of work to do and uh, hopefully some of that work will be done on future adventures with the extraordinary adventure club so callum it's been a real pleasure having you on travel that matters 
thank you very much for having me on the show and uh, see you soon. And now for the Wallen Wrap-Up. All right, I want to tell you a little story. I was in Bali a couple of years ago and I decided, like so many people who, who go to Bali, I decided to do the, the sunrise hike up the volcano Mount Batur. And I was staying at Mandapa, the Ritz-Carlton Reserve property in, in Ubud, which, side note, that one of the most stunningly beautiful resorts I've ever seen. Anyways, we, we left Mandapa at 3 a.m. I think it was about a two-hour drive out to the volcano, to the trail. We start hiking. It's pitch dark. We have our, you know, our headlamps on, and we're going up this trail, and it's dark, and it's quiet, and it's spooky, and, and all these things. And we're so excited to, to, to be scaling a volcano in the dark. And all of a sudden, we hear this, like the whining sound of a, a moped or, or dirt bike engine, and then another and another. And all of a sudden, we're getting passed by these like whining dirt bikes flying past us. And we realize that there's a bunch of people who are just going up to the top of this thing. They're not even hiking. They're just taking these dirt bikes. And we get up to the top, and we were one of the first hiking groups up there, but there's already a fair amount of people. Soon enough, before the sun even comes up, it's like a giant party up there. There's Russians passing along vodka and, and sausages. There's a, a group of Canadians circling some guy with a guitar singing 90s pop music. And here, we thought we were having this very special kind of spiritual experience on top of this volcano. And it was anything but, obviously. But, you know, truthfully, once the sun came up, it, it really, everyone kind of shut up and he observed the spectacle of it all. And it was, it was spectacular. I mean, it was, it was absolutely beautiful, but, but the best part came after that. So we had this great guide and after the sun came up and everyone had snapped their Instagram photos and, and people, you know, people started going back down the hill, back on their dirt bikes or by foot or whatever it was. And he said, Hey, do you want to go a different way down? And he said, he says, it's better. It's my, it's like, it's prettier. The less people I said, yeah, that sounds great. So we went a different way down and, it was longer. It was harder. It was a harder hike. But within a few minutes, there was no one else there. It felt like we were walking on a dragon's spine through some like mystical land of clouds and views of ocean and volcanoes. And it was absolutely stunning. And it was pure solitude. It was amazing that we just took a right instead of a left. And we had this place to ourselves. So the point of that story is that sometimes the best travel experiences require a little effort, right? They're not always handed to you. You have to work and you have to work to do something different, to do something that other people aren't doing to kind of get away from the crowd. And not to say that there's anything wrong with wonderful experiences like sipping a margarita on the beach in Cabo. I love that too. But sometimes it's nice to like try to do something different that other people aren't doing. And Extraordinary Adventure Club epitomizes that. My experience with them was not easy. It was a, like a constant push and pull of emotional and physical tests. But in the end, it was one of the most rewarding and meaningful travel experiences of my life. And it doesn't have to be with them. It can be wherever you are, however you're traveling. You know, just that idea of making a little extra effort, pushing yourself a little further or harder, and the rewards can be astronomical. I'd like to thank Kellen Morrison for joining us today on Travel That Matters. If anyone you know would benefit from an extraordinary adventure, please pass along this episode to them or visit kurtco.com for more information. This episode was produced for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley and Dara Stone. Music by Joey Salvia. Mastering by Steve Rickyberg. I'm Bruce Wallen, and we'll see you next time.
Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.